We've been waiting for you. Come on in. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and Dr. Erica Reamer. Today's senior healthcare consultant, Colleen Deegan, continues her series on outpatient CDI. Susan Gatehouse, founder and president of Axia Solutions, reports on the CMS one-year extension of 13 new technology add-on payments. Nationally recognized professional auditor and coder Terry Fletcher reports CMS's resumed targeted probe and educate audits. Senior healthcare consultant Lori Johnson has the latest coding news and Tim Powell is at the Tuesday News Desk. Plus, Dr. Reamer presents her talkback segment. Now here's the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, the host of Talk 10 Tuesday, and the neighbor who definitely did not put his trash in your bin, Chuck Buck. <laughs> Thank you very much, Clark Anthony. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 480th live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, and good morning, Erica. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. Well, it looks like the United States dodged another bullet. The Senate last week approved a short-term debt ceiling increase, and the House is expected to do the same later today. Yep, that's true, and that means the U.S. won't default on its bills this time. Yep, that's true. Now, if the country were to default, the impact would really be substantial. It would impact benefit payments to tens of millions of retirees, plus Medicare and Medicaid providers along with thousands and thousands of others who receive checks from the government. Yeah, but keep in mind that this deal is only temporary. It's been extended until December 3rd, and after that, the battle starts all over again, the Republicans and the Democrats to raise the debt ceiling. Mm-hmm, indeed. Uh, by the way, uh, Pfizer has asked the FDA to authorize its COVID-19 vaccine for youngsters. Those are the kids between 5 and 11. And if approved, the shots for kids will begin in a matter of weeks. They're also reviewing boosters for other vaccines. And by the way, sad news report, the death toll today in the United States is now approaching 720,000. Now, changing the subject from inpatient to outpatient, specifically outpatient CDI, right? Yes. My good friend Colleen Deegan continues her biweekly series here on Talk 10 Tuesdays about outpatient CDI. Colleen will also have a Talk 10 Tuesday listeners survey on outpatient CDI each time she's on the broadcast. And we all want you all to participate in Colleen's listener survey. She'll use the responses to help determine where and how to focus efforts that will have the greatest impact on making improvements. Indeed. And you have a talkback segment today. What's on your radar screen this time? Well, I have a very interesting COVID-19 story for you all. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing all about that. We have much news to report. We begin this morning with Tim Powell, who's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by the ICD University Bookstore, inviting you to attend a special webcast, COVID-19 Update, Coding and Documentation for the Pandemic and Beyond. It features Dr. Eric Reamer this Thursday at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Register at the ICD University Bookstore and earn valuable CEUs for attending. Here now is Tim Powell. Well, thanks, Chuck. And it appears that not all people can be stars. CMS released the star ratings for Medicare Advantage and Medicare Part D plans on October 8th. Plans are rated on a one to five scale with one star representing poor performance and five star representing excellent performance. Star ratings are released annually and at least partially reflect the experiences of people enrolled in Medicare Advantage and Part B prescription drug plans. Medicare star ratings include 32 measures for Medicare Advantage and 14 measures for Medicare Part D drug plans. One of the largest problems of the star rating system is that it struggles to adjust for differences in the affluence of patient populations. 
the members doing elder care yoga in Beverly Hills are much healthier than the members in Lawndale, California. And it's easy to get regular medical care and eat healthy food when you have money to make it possible. This access to care and a healthier lifestyle choices drive the measures as certain, that make certain plans five-star plans. And a posting at CMS.gov states, if a Medicare Advantage plan, Medicare drug plan, or Medicare cost plan with a five-star rating is available in your area, you can use the five-star special enrollment period to switch from your current Medicare plan to a Medicare plan with a five-star quality rating. And you can use this special enrollment period only once between December 8th and November 30th. My comment is that many poor and rural areas don't have a five-star plan uh, to begin with, and insurance companies are not rushing to make it happen. This option to switch to a five-star plan is the luxury of affluent areas. In America, it seems that the rich are getting richer, but apparently they're getting better health care too. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tim, very much. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert and an ICD-10 Monitor National Correspondent. It's Tuesday. It's October the 12th. It's also Case Management Week. You're listening to a special 60-minute live edition of Talk in Tuesday. Stand by. COVID-19 is the ultimate moving target, but that does not excuse your facility from the consequences of incorrect or incomplete coding, imprecise provider documentation, or inappropriate billing. Since the pandemic began, Dr. Erica Reamer has closely monitored the evolution of the disease and coupled this extensive knowledge with the latest best practices in ICD-10-CM coding and documentation. In her upcoming webcast, Dr. Reamer will review current COVID-19 trends, including the rapid spread of the Delta variant. She will highlight areas of confusion that could prevent you from obtaining accurate, complete clinical documentation and arriving at the correct code assignments. You'll also get a look at what's ahead for COVID-19 coding beyond the pandemic. The crucially important live webcast is this Thursday, October 14th. Register today at the ICD University Bookstore. Here now with the Talk to Tuesday Coding Report is Lori Johnson. Good morning, Lori. Good morning, Chuck. Good morning, Erica, and hello to our listeners. And happy Case Management Week as well. The Department of Health and Human Services released a new report which shows that COVID-19 vaccinations may have assisted in preventing thousands of new COVID infections and deaths among seniors. And I've, pre- I've created some slides to show you today. So the study shows that COVID vaccinations were linked to a decrease of 265,000 infections, 107,000 hospitalizations, 39,000 deaths of Medicare beneficiaries between January and May 2021. You can see that in the bottom part of the slide. Moving to the next slide, this study also identified racial and ethnic and nursing home subgroups. The study also added Medicare Advantage beneficiaries, which added 62.7 million to the 25.3 million of Medicare fee-for-service. This slide shows the infections by ethnicity. Moving to our next slide, the slide shows that Medicare fee-for-service only by ethnicity and hospitalization rate. And the following slide shows Medicare fee-for-service by ethnicity for death rate, as again, shown in this slide. 
This slide shows Medicare fee-for-service and projected Medicare Advantage with a comparison of community versus nursing home infections, hospitalizations, and deaths. I've also provided the URL in the last slide, and these slides are also available for you in the Resources tab. So again, this is a 26-page paper, so there's a lot of information in it. And I just have a couple of reminders that the American Medical Association has released CPT codes for pediatric Pfizer two-dose vaccine. The codes are 91307 for the vaccine. It's a um, preservative-free, and it's done intramuscularly. And the administration is 0071A for the first dose and 0072A for the second dose. And the full descriptions can be found on the American Medical Association website. And one other note is that the videos have been posted for the Coordination and Maintenance Committee meeting from September. So if you're looking to view them, they are available now. So let's move to the listener survey for today. Do you believe that the data for the Medicare fee-for-service and Medicare Advantage is indicative of the entire population regarding COVID infections, hospitalizations, and deaths? Answers are A for yes, B for no, C for do not know, and D, no answer. And with that, we'll go back to Erica. Thanks, Lori. That was Lori Johnson. Lori is a senior healthcare consultant at Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And Lori Johnson, thanks again for an outstanding presentation. As Lori said, we're going to have the results of the Talk to Tuesday listener survey later in this broadcast. Good news, everyone, from CMS. The agency is extending by one year payments for new 13 technology payments. Otherwise, those payments would end in the fiscal year of 2022. Here now with the details is Susan Gatehouse. Hello, Susan. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning to all. CMS desires to use the best data available and rate setting for the upcoming fiscal year. Because COVID has unsettled the playing field within the healthcare arena, CMS made the decision to use data from 2019 instead of 2020 due to the COVID-19 public health emergency. CMS is finalizing a one-year extension of new technology add-on payments for 13 technologies for which new technology add-on payments would have otherwise discontinued beginning uh, October 1 or beginning this fiscal year 2022. Also, wanted to point out there's new COVID technology add-on payments. The criteria and formula is different for new COVID technology add-on payments versus the traditional technology add-on payments. For the new COVID technology add-on payments, the technology has to be approved for emergency use or FDA approved, and it also has to be eligible, or claim has to be eligible for the 20% payment increase to an MSDRG, so the patient does have to be positive, or, um, and the code has to be present on the claim the US 7.1 when appropriate. New COVID treatment add-on payments for new COVID technology add-on payments are eligible for discharges during the public health emergency. In addition, CMS predicts that inpatient COVID occasions will continue 
to be treated beyond the expiration of the public health emergency. In an effort to mitigate any potential financial pitfalls for hospitals treating COVID patients, CMS is extending the new COVID technology add-on payment for eligible COVID-19 products to the end of the fiscal year in which the PHE ends. CMS is inserting measures for new COVID technology add-on payments that are discontinued but may still be eligible for the traditional new technology add-on payments. However, hospitals will be eligible to receive both new COVID technology add-on payments and the traditional new technology add-on payments for qualifying patient stays throughout the end of the fiscal year in which the public health emergency ends. The new technology add-on payment will reduce the amount available for the new COVID technology add-on payment. So to give you an example of some of the timeframes in which we've talked about certain payments starting, stopping, et cetera, if a fiscal year ends, on September 30th, but in the public health emergency, it is declared over on December 25th, 2022. A payment would remain in effect until the new fiscal year begins on 10-1-2023. So that kind of gives you an example of some of the dates that we've talked about here of when a payment would start and stop. Several new technology substances, services, and devices were on schedule to be phased out this year, but a one-year extension was granted. Some can be add-on status for two to three years before being discontinued. Some from 2020 are in their last year for 2022. Hospitals are encouraged to report the PCS code for the various types of COVID treatments. Many hospitals have implemented measures to ensure the new COVID technology add-on payments are not omitted during the billing process via checks and balances. For example, the finance department can run reports of accounts with new COVID technology add-on payment charges without a PCS code. These accounts can be sent to HIM for review and remediation if necessary. This is not an uncommon practice. It has been in place for hospitals for quite some time to deal with the new technology add-on payments that I refer to here as traditional so there are 42 technology technologies eligible to receive add-on payments for 2022. CMS estimates $1.5 billion in Medicare spending for 2022, which is a 77% increase over fiscal year 2021. So with that said, we want to make sure to capture all that we can. So back to you, or tossing to you, Erica. Thank you. Thanks, Susan. That was Susan Gatehouse. Susan is founder and president of Axia Solutions. Chuck. Thanks, Erica and Susan Gatehouse. Thank you so very much. Be sure to read Susan's story on this major development in today's ICD-10 monitoring. Coming up next, the surprising results of today's Talk to Tuesday listener survey and later, the return of some audits that must be really frightening to some providers. That story is next, but first, this important announcement. Dramatic constant change is now the norm for society and for healthcare. With so much upheaval, you must adopt new practices and protocols, including how you access continuing education. In-person conferences are not always possible, but it's important to stay current with ICD-10 coding best practices and the latest rules. And CEUs are still needed to maintain professional credentials. Get critical continuing education today. 
with a subscription to the ICD-10 Monitor Educational Webcasts. For one affordable annual fee, everyone on your team gets access to dozens of exclusive ICD-10 Monitor Webcasts on a comprehensive range of timely topics. Is an ICD-10 Monitor subscription right for you? Visit the portal page at ICD University for more details and to sign up for a complimentary three-day trial. What type of audits that uh, providers fear most? Well, that story is next. But here now with the results of today's Talking Tuesday listeners survey is Lori Johnson. Thank you, Chuck. Do you believe that the data for Medicare fee-for-service and Medicare Advantage is indicative of the entire population regarding COVID infections, hospitalization, and death? Responses are A, yes, 9.69%, no, 53%, B, I don't know, 30%, and no answer, 7%. There's been a lot of discussion regarding the data that's associated with COVID, so it's interesting that we have a lot of people not confirming that the data for -for fee-for-service and Medicare Advantage is not indicative of the entire population, which I would tend to agree with because they are older and typically sicker than the rest of the population. So with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Lori, very much. CMS is resuming the dreaded targeted probe and educate audits. It's our special report. And here now with that story is Terry Fletcher. Good morning, Terry. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, listeners. CMS announced that targeted probe and educate TPE audits would resume on September 1st of this year. CPE audits have been suspended by CMS during the public health emergency. Unlike recovery audits, the goal of TPE audits is to help providers reduce claim denials and appeals with one-on-one education focused on the documentation and coding of the services they provide. Who conducts the TPE audits and why? This is your local Medicare carrier or the MACs. CMS has increased provider education, which results in decreased error rates and appeals through the CMS appeals process. While originally limited in the scope to hospital inpatient admissions and home health claims, CMS expanded the program in 2020 to allow MACs to perform TPE audits of all Medicare providers for all items and services billed to Medicare. Why are providers chosen? Providers are chosen based on data analysis, such as high error rates in their billing practices, in their submission of claims to the MACs, or because they are outliers in their code utilization rates compared to their peers. However, providers can also be chosen for reasons unrelated to their own billing practices if they bill for items that have high error rates nationally. What is the process of a TPE audit? Well, provider receives a notice of review, a letter from the MAC which states the reason the provider has been selected for review and requests anywhere from 20 to 40 records to be produced. Once the records are produced, the MAC will review 20 to 40 claims against the supporting medical records and then send the provider a letter detailing the results of their review. A reminder, do not ignore these letters. They do come in a pink envelope. If the claims are found to be compliant, the TPE audit is complete for that provider, the physician, hospital, or QHP, and the provider cannot be selected for a review again for a year or 12 months unless the MAC detects significant changes in the provider billing. If the claims are found not to be compliant, the MAC will schedule the provider to a one-on-one education session specific to the findings, documentation, and coding practices. Then the provider has 45 days to make changes and on to round two. Providers are actually given three rounds of a TPE audit to pass. If the provider fails to pass after three rounds, they will be referred to CMS for further action. 
The next steps can include actions such as 100% prepay review, extrapolation, referral to recovery revenue auditor, or another action. What are common mistakes in TPE audits? Okay, so according to the CMS.gov site, the most common errors are the signature of certifying physician is missing. This could be a manual signature or a missing authentication of the electronic record or a missing counter signature for teaching physicians or supervising physicians. The encounter does not support medical necessity. Remember, it is the payer's definition of medical necessity for an item or service, not the physician's opinion. The documentation does not support medical necessity. That's different. Missing links from a presenting problem, an ordered test or procedure. Missing or incomplete certifications or recertification documents. This is a big one, as advanced diagnostics performed in a physician's office have certification requirements for safety as does OSHA. So best practices for a TPE, TPE audit. If you're a provider that has received an audit request, the best defense begins immediately prior to sending the requested records. By sending complete and organized records during the first round of TPE, the chances of passing are increased. Healthcare organizations should attempt to prove compliance during the first round review and avoid other, another audit for that particular item or service for at least 12 months. A well-developed initial response to a TPE audit can make all the difference between passing the audit or being referred to CMS for another action, as the next steps can be brutal. The key to avoiding continuous TPE review is improving from round to round. Healthcare organizations should strive, should strive to increase the accuracy of the claims in each round and set goals of improving after each round of TPE review to avoid further rounds of the review. As part of the internal review, healthcare organizations should document when the audit occurs and what steps the organization has taken to address the issues that were part of that TPE audit. The organization should also document if you've done any training since the TPE audit. That is one area that is lacking, and that's being proactive for TPE or any Medicare audit, not letting your guard down once the audit is completed. The preparation for an audit should be ongoing, as you never know when you may get requests for an audit. The worst thing a practice can do is ignore a TPE audit request. One of the top reasons for denial in the later stages of the TPE review is untimely responses or no response. So responding timely also involves complying with every step of the ADR or additional documentation request. It is important to refer to policies and procedures for the MACs responsible for your region because even though they have a lot of discretion in the TPE audit process, each MAC has different policies and procedures for how healthcare organizations can submit their TPE audit responses. The standard TPE audit policies and procedures that they follow can be found in my article posted to the icd10monitor.com website today. And with that, back to you, Erica. Thank you, Terry. That was actually excellent. That was nationally recognized professional coder, auditor, and consultant, Terry Fletcher. Thank you so very much, and be sure to read her excellent article. It's in today's ICD-10 Monitor. We continue now a new series here on Talking Tuesdays called Outpatient CDI and reporting on Outpatient CDI is Colleen Deegan. And at the conclusion of her segment, Colleen's going to conduct a Talk to Tuesday listener survey on the subject of Outpatient CDI. So here now with a second installment in her biweekly reporting is Senior Healthcare Consultant Colleen Deegan. And good morning, Colleen. Good morning, Chuck. And good morning to everyone listening in today. For today's Outpatient CDI segment, Hierarchical Condition Categories, or HCCs, is what I want to address and talk about today. When I was here a few weeks ago, I shared that ACTIS, the Association for Clinical Documentation Integrity Specialists, 
had recently done a CDI survey. And in that survey, it was reported that 45% of the respondents indicated that risk adjustments and HCCs was the current focus of their outpatient CDI program. That was also the survey question presented to the listeners on my initial segment on outpatient CDI a few weeks ago. Our listener survey revealed that 37% of those who responded answered that HCCs was the main area of focus for their outpatient CDI program, pointing out also that HCCs was the majority response in both of those surveys. Hierarchical condition categories, or HCCs, have been used by the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services as part of a risk adjustment payment model for the Medicare Advantage program since 2004. The CMS HCC model is the most well-known model and is a prospective model using this year's data to predict and pay for expected medical costs in the following year. In addition to the CMS model, there is a Health and Human Services, or HHS model. It came after the passage of the Affordable Care Act in 2010, mainly used in the commercial payer health plans, also see it used by some state Medicaid programs. The HHS model includes all ages and is a concurrent model using this year's data to predict and pay for expected medical costs in the current year. So why do HCCs matter and why are more and more organizations focusing their efforts on HCC capture? The enrollment in Medicare Advantage has more than doubled in the past decade. CMS national data for 2019 shows that 42% of Medicare beneficiaries are participating in a Medicare Advantage plan. In 2009, that was just 28%. That means Medicare Advantage patients are and will continue to be a growing part of a healthcare organization's payer mix. So this shift moving from fee-for-service to value-based models, along with the shift of services from the inpatient setting to the outpatient setting are two main reasons that HCCs matter. The CMS HCC model has two components, the hierarchy and the condition category. The hierarchies are the compilation of all of the condition categories. The hierarchy determines payment and consists of related conditions or diseases within a similar cost based on severity and expected use of resources. A patient can have multiple HCC categories assigned to them, but within an HCC hierarchy, only the highest and most severe condition in the hierarchy will be assigned. A risk adjustment factor score, also known as a RAF score or RAF factor, uh, is assigned to each beneficiary based on their disease burden and their demographic factors such as their age, their gender, whether they live in the community or live in a in an institution such as a skilled nursing facility. So in concept, the higher the RAF score, the sicker the patient. Within a Medicare Advantage plan, the plan will have an average RAF score for the population, and then each patient in the plan will have an individual RAF score. When embarking on an HCC program or even reassessing a program, a data-driven approach is a key to determining where to begin or refine your HCC efforts. Analysis of prior claims data can provide details on, on a baseline RAF score, a year-over-year -year diagnosis recapture, specific HCCs potentially being underdocumented or undercoded. CMS does expect within their age population disease progression and new conditions to develop, and this is why complete disease burden with HCCs must be recaptured annually. Another key step is an operational assessment to understand from the point of the documentation 
to the code capture, to the claim submission, who's doing what and what processes are they using to do that work. It's likely that HCCs will require you to redefine workflows, even create a workflow that doesn't currently exist, develop new policies and procedures, identify educational needs of physicians, non-physician practitioners, documentation specialists, and coding professionals. For HCC capture, the timing of the record review to identify conditions not yet captured in the current year, underdocumented conditions, and even perhaps diagnoses captured that didn't meet the documentation requirements for, comp for compliant claim submission is a main consideration for how and for how, you know, just a component of designing your outpatient CDI program around HCC capture. Which brings me to my survey question for today. For listeners with HCC efforts, what is the timing of your HCC medical record chart review? Is that number one, prospective? Number two, concurrent? Number three, retrospective. Number four, we don't perform reviews. We focus on education. Or number five, other response. Back to you, Erica. Thanks, Colleen. That was my friend and colleague, Colleen Deegan. Colleen is a senior healthcare consultant for 3M. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And Colleen Deegan, thank you very much for your report on today's Talk to Tuesday listener survey. And we're going to share the results of that survey during our town halls coming up shortly. You're listening to a special 60-minute live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Coming up next, Dr. Erica Weimer's talk back and today's town hall. Next week, Chuck Buck and Dr. Weimer host another special edition of Talk 10 Tuesday featuring AHIMA President Catherine Lusk. Also on board next Tuesday will be former OIG official Eric Rubenstein. He'll report on the rising incident of telehealth fraud against the Medicare population and what he calls telemarketing fraud. Rounding out next week's program is the Director of Coding Quality and Education for the Hagen Consulting Group, Christy Pollard. That and more next Tuesday, October 19th at 10 a.m. Eastern. Now it's time for a very popular segment here at Talk to Tuesday. It's called Talk Back, and it features our own Dr. Erica Reamer. And Dr. Reamer, it's all yours. Thanks, Chuck. Well, when the world stopped in March 2020, I was just coming into speaking season. This consists of me traveling around the country, speaking at national and regional meetings. All of these sessions got canceled, postponed, or converted into virtual. Fall of 2021 looked promising, so organizations rescheduled meetings that are usually held in the spring for this month. These annual conferences likely supply the majority of income for organizations, and there are concerns about disenfranchised and unengaged people not, re not renewing their memberships. But are you sure you want to have these conferences in person while Delta is so, still so actively circulating? The irony is not lost on me, and I expect it won't be lost on you guys either, that I almost had to miss my OHIMA COVID-19 talk because I had been exposed to COVID. On the CDI New Year, October 1st, I FaceTimed my vaccinated 90-year-old father, and he said he wasn't feeling well. He couldn't articulate why, and I made the mistake of asking him a leading question of whether anything hurt. He identified his right knee, which has a wound from a previous fall. My father is the poster child for sepsis from cellulitis, so I drove right over. The assisted living staff waylaid me at the entry. When checking vital signs as I had requested, they also did a rapid antigen test because another resident had tested positive. 
my father also tested positive. I donned PPE to check out his knee and ask him more questions. He admitted to feeling very fatigued, and then he coughed a couple of times. I didn't really need to be an emergency physician to know this, but my father had breakthrough COVID. Things moved very quickly. I texted his PCP who arranged for him to go to a nearby hospital for monoclonal antibodies. I didn't realize I was allowed to go to the hospital at the time. Remember when COVID patients weren't allowed to have companions? On arrival, the nurse informed me that he had COVID pneumonia on x-ray, but he wasn't considered a candidate for the treatment because he couldn't ambulate. They were unaware he needed a walker, and when they got one for him, he was able to walk without a drop in oxygen, and the Regen COV was a go again. He was able to go back to the assisted living, and he did just fine, thank goodness. However, five days later, I had a little scratch in my throat, sneezed a few times, and had a stuffy nose. Was it my typical ragweed or do-do-do? I figured it was prudent to rule out COVID. I had procured four kits from our library earlier in the week just in case. It was a government-sanctioned rapid antigen kit, which instructed the patient to contact a testing professional or walk them through, through the steps. My husband had to actually hold my iPad camera for the guide to see my nose and the test card at the same time. I never wished for a single pink line so hard in my life, and my wish came true. The organizer of OHEMA 2021 coding seminar was extremely relieved that it was negative because she already had had some other presenter cancel. It is so frustrating to be in this predicament when people refuse to get vaccinated. If we had all gotten our shots en masse when we were eligible, the virus would have been thwarted. It would be like trying to start a bonfire without fuel. If there is no dry wood, unvaccinated people, there is no fire. Virus outbreak. My poor father with his elderly, weak immune system is like a piece of wet wood. It is less likely to catch fire, but combustion is not impossible. So after my speaking engagement, my husband and I spent a few days recharging in Columbus after the conference. On Saturday, we ended up in Loudonville, Ohio, and were mortified to find ourselves in the midst of a street fair with, quote, free admission, free entertainment, free exhibits, close quotes, and I figure free COVID-19 exposure. It was a five-day affair of curb-to-curb masses of unmasked revelers. How many cases will result from this? In Ashland County, with a vaccination rate of 37%, this clearly will send the incidents back up in two to three weeks. Then I read a disturbing article about an almost-term pregnant woman who refused vaccination and vacationed with her family on a Florida beach, which was in the midst of a COVID-19 Delta variant surge. Her entire family contracted COVID-19, and she succumbed to her infection. Her newborn baby will never meet her, and her 22-month-old son now only gets to hear her voice in a teddy bear recording. Obstetricians, who rarely lose patients, are noting a very unsettling trend of patients dying from COVID-19, and they are almost exclusively unvaccinated. Only 31% of pregnant women are vaccinated. 15 to 25% of COVID-positive pregnancies are requiring critical care, 
and the death rate from Delta for them is considerably higher than the original variant. The CDC and ACOG now unequivocally recommend vaccination during pregnancy. Please get vaccinated. Please urge your friends and family to get vaccinated. The COVID-19 pandemic is not over yet. This is not just a scare tactic. As soon as you are eligible, get your booster shot. The vaccines work, but their efficacy diminishes with time. I expect sometime in the next few weeks that we will be told that Moderna and Janssen, Johnson & Johnson vaccines require boosters as well. My dad will get his booster in three months according to protocol. You don't receive vaccine within 90 days of monoclonal antibodies. As for me, I can't wait to be eligible. Bring it. On a final note, please join me this Thursday, October 14th, or on demand for a COVID-19 webinar. Go to ICD University to register. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Erica. Now is the time for our Talk 10 Tuesday Town Hall, and I'd like to begin with hearing the results of today's Talk 10 Tuesday listener survey on outpatient CDI. So joining me now is Colleen Deegan. Colleen, what are the results and what are some of the takeaways? Thanks, Chuck. So let me read the question again. For listeners with HCC efforts, what, was, what is the timing of your HCC medical record chart review? 15% of the listeners said A, which is prospective. 23% said concurrent. 23% said retrospective. 16% of the listeners said they don't perform a review at this time and they focus on education. And 22% said other. So those of you that said other, I'd love to have a question from you in the chat area. You know, there's so many different ways that you can address HCCs. Um, The perspective, it has, you know, the fewer responses between concurrent retrospective and perspective. Um, And that, that again, is the story of outpatient CDI. So we really need to be doing, in my opinion, of course, a perspective review and standing up an outpatient CDI program. And we know there's still a lot of opportunity for this. So when you think about a, a documentation review that's done, you know, the, the best approach is really to look, um, you know, about three days out from a patient's visit. So, so one thing I want to point out, too, at the beginning, Chuck, here of, of the discussion is that when we think about HCCs, the majority of the patients are being seen in the physician clinic, even in the Medicare population. So there's a, the percentage of patients you know, that have a, um, have a hospital inpatient admission in the Medicare population is somewhere, I'm, I'm going to just, it's somewhere around 15%. Um, so we have a large percentage of these patients in the physician clinic. So I start to think about the volume of, of, of physician visits in a, in a clinic in a given day. So it becomes very difficult to do a concurrent review. Um, but the prospective review allows you a few days from the record, from the patient's visit to kind of look longitudinally at what hasn't yet been captured you know, sort of, uh, you know, with the physician, prepare for the visit, send any queries to the physicians um, on on anything that might need to be uh, addressed during the visit. A concurrent review um, means that you're, you know, really in real time um, looking at the documentation with, you know, really sort of with the physician, which is very difficult to do. Uh, Some some of the listeners may be taking concurrent to mean like pre-claim submission and, and as part of the review. Uh, the concurrent is what we see done on the inpatient CDI. So when you think about a hospital inpatient stay, it could be two two days or 200 days. You know, a concurrent review is much easier to achieve when you think about the outpatient setting. Again, where most of these patients are, 
um, a concurrent review and just the sheer volume is difficult to, to, to do. So I commend those that are, are doing that, which again was about 24%. Retrospective could either mean pre-claim or post-claim submission. A retrospective review combined with a prospective review, of course, is the most compliant process, and maybe that's what some of the responses from the other uh, other uh, response were. But retrospective, um, you know, again, ensures that the claim is properly um, addressed and clean and accurate, uh, which is, you know, again, a requirement from CMS that we submit an accurate claim, so that retrospective review. You can also do that post the claim submission, and that's where we see a lot of the focus. It creates administrative burden, of course, because you have to correct claims. Um, it's difficult to get queries answered in that process. Uh, but again, even letter D, Chuck, when we, you know, educational efforts are very important for HCCs, um, and we know a lot of clients, you know, that I work with are, are doing a lot of education efforts alone, still trying to determine how to stand up an outpatient CDI program. Again, it becomes retrospective in nature, but can be effective as well. Very good. Hey, Colleen, we received a number of questions relative to HCCs and uh, patient CDI, so let's answer those questions. The first question I see here, Chuck, um, is asking, is it correct to say that HCCs do not impact hospital facility reimbursement? And if that is correct, can you please explain why outpatient CDI departments should focus on HCCs? So hopefully my little, my, my uh, four or five minute segment answered some of that question, but if, regarding hospital inpatient, Certain HCCs, and I'll use diabetes as an example, right? So a patient can have diabetes without any complications. A patient can have diabetes with chronic complications. And a patient can have diabetes with acute complications, such as diabetic ketoacidosis. So in some settings, HCCs do impact hospital reimbursement, likely because within the MSDRG system, they're a CC or an MCC if they're in their acute and or even chronic phases, such as heart failure. But definitely, there. so, so some HCCs, do impact payment, but that's in the MSDRG methodology. Um, what I do see is mature inpatient CDI programs focusing on HCCs uh, and making sure that, you know, again, it's an opportunity to look at the chronic disease burden. Um, and, you know, today CDI focuses their, their efforts on DRG impact or CCMCC impact or uh, SOIROM impact, but additional impact could be HCCs. It may not be affecting that particular DRG payment or that DRG assignment, but again, it's an opportunity to make sure that complete disease burden is captured for the patient, which is a, a, a very important element of this. Can I pipe in for just a second? Sure. So there's a couple yes, of absolutely. other there's a couple of other reasons too. Um, so you know, m many hospital systems now are uh, they're they're not strictly just a hospital. So they may also have an ACO that's associated with them. They may also mm -hmm. have, you know, they may have a provider um, group that is employed by them who also has Medicare Advantage patients. So, um, it, you know, we, when we think about, you know, it may not strictly affect hospital facility reimbursement, but that doesn't mean that it isn't necessarily affecting the hospital or the hospital system. Um, the other thing that I just want to kind of say is I think sometimes we get really focused on one risk adjustment system, and it's kind of like a balloon. If you start squeezing the HCCs, you may start shoving out the CCs and the MCCs. If you're only attending the CCs and MCCs, then you may end up with your patient safety indicators getting getting um, out, of, out of whack. So, like, I kind of think 
of documentation. I think that it just should be supporting how sick and complex the patient is. And then the HCCs and the DRGs and the APR DRGs and the patient safety indicators all fall kind of where they belong and you get the appropriate reimbursement. So I think we, we sometimes spend a little bit too much time trying to like manipulate these risk adjustment models when what we really should just be doing is making sure that the doctors, the providers are you know, documenting um, accurately and then letting everything fall where it belongs. Colleen, let's answer a couple other questions came in. There's one from uh, Melissa and there's one from Rochelle. I'll start with Rochelle's question, and uh, Rochelle, I'll repeat that. It says, I work for the VA, the Veterans Administration. We do not bill Medicare or Medicaid. What do we need to focus our outpatient CDI program on? Um, And again, through the course of the next couple of segments, we're going to talk about some other areas of outpatient CDI, but I have to echo, you know, just Erica's general comment around just complete and accurate documentation. Uh, There are definitely some revenue cycle opportunities that we'll talk about in the coming weeks that may be more of a focus um, for some of your third-party billers with the VA program. Hey, Colleen. For this one, I I actually, I do also have, uh, so I think one of the risk adjustment models that um, the VA uses is the Veterans Equitable Resource Allocation, or VERA. And so that actually is based on, as you were talking about, the disease burden, so how sick the patients are. So so it's the same, you know, it's all the same concept. So, um, you know, when you're working within that system, like the VA, if what you're working in is the VERA, then what you do want to figure out is which conditions seem to make a difference and make sure that your doctors are picking those up. But it doesn't mean that you should be sort of ignoring the other ones that are important, even if they're not on that, that list. Thank you, Erica. Um, and the, the question around risk adjustment and workers' compensation came from Marciella. So how does risk adjustment capture impact workers' compensation claims? Um, and again, it, a holistically complete and accurate documentation uh, is, 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 you know, the key to, um, you know, disease burden. I'm not, I don't have a specific response to workers' compensation claims and risk adjustment, um, but we do see just to say that more and more organizations and, and plans focusing on quality over quantity um, and, and these value-based models. Robert Hodges said that right. VERA is not a risk adjustment model. It is a funding model. And I just want to say that I'm kind of using the concept of risk adjustment model sort of loosely. To me, what that means is that there are certain conditions which have some impact on a weighting system, or a financial system, a reimbursement system. And, and so making sure that you capture these conditions um, adjusts the, you know, whatever it is you're doing, whether it's a quality issue or whether it's a funding issue. So um, I, I respect, you know, the, the, this person who, who mentioned it. He actually works in the VA. I respect your, your, your position. I'm using it sort of in, in more of a loosey-goosey way, um, in that people should be making sure they're picking up the conditions um, to make sure that they get everything, the risk adjustment and the finances where they belong. Very good. Terry Fletcher had a comment. Uh, do you want to address that comment, please, Colleen? Terry, um, you know, my, my colleague here and, and esteemed Terry Fletcher, who I, I personally have listened to for years, so I've learned a lot from you, Terry, um, <laughs> said that uh, most workers, worker compensation payers are not looking at HCCs at all, and, and I tend to agree with that. So I just wanted to point out that Terry, who, who always has, you know, strong uh, knowledge-based 
just, you know, collaborating on that response. So we did have a couple write in and say, you know, when I asked about other, that they're doing a combination of prospective and retrospective, and, and some are even doing a mix of prospective, concurrent, and retrospective. So appreciate you uh, ladies answering that question that I had. Also, there's a question from Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Uh, can you answer that question for him, please? Oh, man, uh, that, no pressure there. <laughs> <laughs> if a physician is in a private practice, self-employed and not in an ACO or a bundled payment program and only paid by fee-for-service, is there any reason for them to care about HCCs? Dr. Hirsch, I'm going to say yes, there is a reason to care because uh, what I do see uh, is more and more as, as contracts get written for um, you know, different payer programs and between a, a provider of services and a payer of services, we do see the shift of most most of them having some some risk shared, some quality component to them. And so the underlying concept of complete and accurate documentation and disease burden, um, you know, again, first and foremost, the course of documentation is for communication between providers to understand how sick my patient is. So even though they're in private practice or self-employed, just the communication of the documentation of the disease burden is important, but I, I think we do definitely see commercial plans being written along the lines of this. So I think it'll continue to involve, and it behooves them to, um, you know, take those concepts. Thank you for asking. And you know what else is kind of interesting to me is that um, a long time ago, Chuck, I don't know if you remember this, when we first started, when I first started on Talk 10 Tuesdays, um, I was talking about, I was kind of confused, like, why is it? Why does everybody just call this outpatient CDI? Because this whole concept of um, capturing uh, HCCs, if you're in if you're in some sort of an ACO, it's attached. Your your diagnoses are attached to the patient, and it's not from necessarily from the provider. So you can get your HCCs from the hospital principal and secondary diagnoses, from the profi of the hospital doctors, from office you know mm-hmm. office related visits. So it may be that a person, uh, you know, a, a specific provider, maybe they're a consultant and they're in a, in, a, in a separate group and they get paid fee-for-service, but the HCCs that they document and get captured are still attached to that patient. So, the, you know, that becomes part of that, that patient's um, disease burden, as you put it, so that those HCCs, you know, it, you know it's important for the HCCs to get captured wherever they are. Good point. Erica, let's answer a couple other questions that are coming in. Some of these are related to outpatient CDI. Others are not. And earlier during the broadcast, our good friend Lori Johnson wanted to know from Terry Fletcher, did TPE audits apply to both hospitals and physicians? So, Terry, what's your response? They're mostly focused on physician and Part B information, but if they are heavily focused on hospital admissions and grouping of admissions as well. So in that sense, yes, the the hospital or the facility will also be part of that TPE audit. So that's a great question. It is a great question. That is a good answer, too. Thanks very much. Erica, before we went live this morning at the top of the hour, uh, we had discussed a news item that you had seen where some hospitals are refusing transplant patients who are unvaccinated. Could you comment on that, please? Yeah, actually, it was on the front page of my newspaper. I live in, in the Cleveland area, and my husband had told me about this yesterday. Um, and uh, University Hospitals and the Cleveland Clinic Foundation um, uh, are both the, the I'm sorry the Cleveland Clinic um, are both mandating vaccination for transplant patients, 
and they want both the, the donor and the recipient need to be vaccinated. Um, and if they're not vaccinated by ne- November 1st, they're going to be inactivated on the uh, United Network for Organ Sharing, which is UNOS. And the concept is that the donor, you know, you don't want them showing up to, to, to donate a, a, you know, an organ and they have, you know, COVID at the time. Um, and the concept with the recipient is that they're about to have a weakened immune system um, and they, the, the risk of dying from COVID for transplantations can be as high as 30%. So they really, you know, it, 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 it's a waste um, it's a waste of an organ and resources. If you put it into somebody and they immediately end up with COVID and they die, it's like, how sad is that, that that organ could have gone to somebody else where it could have, you know, maybe lived for 25 years in somebody's body and now it, you know, gets wasted. Um, so it seems like a growing number of hospitals are actually pushing patients down who are unvaccinated, either down or off wait lists for transplants. We do have a couple of more questions here on uh, outpatient CDI, and so I'm going to ask Colleen to come back. A uh, couple of questions here, one from Stacy and one from Laura, and uh, Rose Dunn has a comment. So let's answer Stacy's question, okay, Colleen? The question was really more of a response from Stacy. Um, she stated that our ACO is somehow directing our, um, our program. I know risk adjustment as an overall concept, but the ACO is making our approach very staggered. And I'm guessing, Stacey, that you probably have a retrospective um, reporting structure from your ACO as the claims come in and, and they're kind of directing your focus instead of allowing you to guys to really analyze the data yourselves and, and direct your program. So you get that sort of start and stop to the program as they bring new claims in. The question, I'm going to read it to the audience. The outpatient coding guidelines indicate that a coder should not pick up conditions that have no bearing on the encounter, um, such as in same-day surgery. Uh, We are currently coding all chronic conditions, especially conditions that are HCCs. Are we correct in doing this? Yeah, I think from the official coding guidelines, that's section four, um, and we also use the meet concept or meet criteria when we talk about professional claims and, and physicians meeting criteria, monitor, evaluate, and assess or treat. So I think it's, it's you know, the, the coding guidelines do um, say pick up all chronic conditions that have a bearing on the on the stay. And in the same-day surgery, some of those may be related to um, not necessarily the surgery, but the anesthesia, or so concern from the physician on post-procedural uh, care. So if they, are, if they are documented by the provider, and it could even be the anesthesiologist, uh, those are important to capture um, as secondary diagnoses because they do meet that criteria, provided they're documented appropriately. And a reaction to what you said from Dr. Hirsch. From Rose Dunn, sure, yes. Yeah. She said for Rose Dunn, for Dr. Hirsch, she said, yes, specificity of the diagnosis, which is the key to HCCs, is important to support the provider's profile uh, of use of CPTs for certain diagnoses. Additionally, payers are profiling providers regardless of how the, pro- the provider is being paid. If the physician submits a claim with an incorrect or incomplete code, the payer may come back and hit the provider with a fee payback because the payer's RADV audit finds incorrect claim information. Uh, thank you for that. Um, and we're going to talk about that on my next segment. We're going to talk about some of the RADV, some of the compliance, um, you know, issues around 
and what's been in the news lately around uh, Medicare Advantage, particularly on some RADV and other types of audits. Very good, Colleen. Thanks very much. And that is going to be a wrap for our 480th live edition of Talk to Tuesday. It was a special 60-minute edition. And I want to thank you all for being with us today, and a special thanks to our panelists, Susan Gatehouse, Terry Fletcher, Lori Johnson, Tim Bell, Colin Deegan, who reported our lead story. Thank you again, Colleen. And as always, special thanks to our co-host, Dr. Erica Reamer. And remember, everyone, you can listen to all of Talk and Tuesday broadcast on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And when you do, rate us. Give us a review. Until next Tuesday, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for Talk and Tuesday and IC10 Monitor. Have a great week, everybody. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.